G'day golf fans, Rod Murray here from the Talking Golf Network with a quick sponsors message before we get underway with episode 7 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. If you've been with us from the start, you'll know that the best place to get your top-notch golf gear from is thegolfsociety.com.au. But if you're new, we'll cut you some slack, give you time to grab a pencil and write this down. Head to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. That's where you'll find the very best brands in golf apparel, shoes and accessories and get gear that's otherwise likely not readily available here in Australia. So if you like to look good, good on the course, see what I did there? Good, good. Uh, check them out today, thegolfsociety.com.au. Let's get on with the pod. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Good Good Golf Podcast where it's all good and it's all golf. Rod Murray guiding proceedings solo this week after some international dateline confusion and families and work and other matters getting in the way but don't despair, it's not going to be just me in your ears. We'll miss Adrian Logan, Derek Duncan but we've got one of the game's big guns in to go some way to making up for that. Golf Channel commentator and three-time PGA Tour winner Phil Blackmar will be along in just a moment to chat about his recent blog calling for a high-spin ball to be added to the retail mix. But before we get into that fascinating subject, some homework. Firstly, if you haven't yet visited our stable of programs at the Talking Golf Network, make sure to do so. There is some fantastic stuff there. I've just been listening to Derek's latest episode of Feed the Ball with Jeff Brower. It was outstanding, and I'll be honest, it's going to take me a week or two to digest it all, I think. If you're a fan of Mike Clayton and or Jeff Shackelford, you'll also find State of the Game there, plus the Talking Golf History podcast with Connor Lewis. And if scoring's your thing, Nick O'Hearn's tour mentality should be right up your alley. You can send an email from the website, but let's be honest, that is so last decade. The easiest way to get in touch is to track me down on Twitter at at Rod underscore Murray and my usual co-host Adrian at at Adrian Logue or Derek at at Feed the Ball. Finally, before we bring Phil in, make sure to check out our sponsors website at thegolfsociety.com.au Seriously nice clothes from the very best brands in the game and much of it not available anywhere else in Australia, if you're into how you look on the course and the likes of Travis Matthew, Jay Lindeberg and Hugo Boss are your thing, the Golf Society is the place for you. Log on at thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf and grab yourself something really nice ahead of the Christmas rush. Enough of the administration, let's talk some golf, a task that my guest today will not struggle with since he does it for a living. Phil Blackmar is a staple of golf commentary and his voice would be familiar to almost anyone who's watched a golf telecast in the last few years, but Phil has much more to share than that particular medium allows, and he's going to do some of that today. Phil, welcome. Really good to be catching up again. You'd be familiar with Nick O'Hearn, wouldn't you? The man who beat Tiger Woods twice in match play. Wouldn't you love to have that on your resume? <laughs> Absolutely, wouldn't you? To be able to stare a Tiger down and beat him, not many have been able to say they could do that. No, no, absolutely not. We might talk a bit of Tiger later on, because I know you got an up-close look just last week, not for the first time, at the Zozo Championship and what a performance that was. But as I mentioned in the intro there, Phil, I think the main reason we've come together to talk, you wrote a blog, I'm going to say two weeks ago, and we wanted to have you on last week, but the rain in Japan forced things into Monday, and it all got a bit confused. So we've caught up with you back in the States this week. Uh, But you wrote a blog a couple of weeks about spin. Uh, There's lots of talk. We do a lot of talk on this show about the golf ball going too far at the elite level. What should we do about that? The damage that that does to the game? How much less entertaining? There's all sorts of stuff. Bifurcation. Should we roll it back? How much should we roll it back? You've got a somewhat different take, and I think it's one that's evolved over time. So lay out for me first what the the bones of that blog was, and then we might talk about some of the the reasons why you've sort of come to this position. Well, I I was formerly in favor of bifurcation and rolling the ball back. And I still don't, I'm not against that now either, 
but I just feel like it's going to be really hard to get that done. And the, the biggest thing that's been lost, the biggest sacrifice in the game with this modern ball and modern equipment is the ability to curve the ball. And when you think about imagination and playing the game creatively, you know, it, it brings to mind curve, curving around a tree, curving around a bunker, maybe running it up, playing a high shot when you need to, just a variety of shots. And to me, that's the artistic side of the game that's being missed today. The game today is, is all about golf swings, hitting it in the air, point A to point B, making big, hard swings to as far as you can. And the ball is basically designed not to spin. The clubs are designed to launch it high in the air, and the trajectory stops the ball, not spin. And then for that reason, there's not really a ball that I'm aware of out there that you can spin like you used to be able to spin the old Bellatus. You could just you could really truly paint pictures with that ball, mm -hmm. and I think for people, the average player, it would be a lot easier to teach them a little smaller swings or less effort, where they could control the club a little bit more. Teach them how to control the club base, how to make the ball go to the left, how to make it go to the right, how to hit it lower, how to hit it higher, and I'm I'm convinced that they would have more fun with the game than they're having today trying to play this big long big game it's just so big you know it, it's lost its intimate nature indeed one dimensional is the term that you often hear and it's one i've used many times myself just before we come into some of the the reasons why that might be uh you of course come from a position of credibility three-time winner on the tour course but have played the bulk of your career with that old ballada ball which is the one that we all think about what i think when we think of Seve and norman and nicholas and the amazing feats of their careers and of course i know, I know that you've played golf in the modern era as well with the modern era. but tell us a little bit for a good player and there's not many of you but tell us a bit for a good player what the differences are and then we might discuss why a ball that curves might be more interesting to both watch and play with well, the, the modern ball, like I said, is one that's designed not to curve. It's designed lower spin, higher launch, uh, both off the driver and off the irons as well. The irons are being designed to launch the ball more up into the air now and spin less. The wind affects it less. Um, but you can't do much with it. It's, it's harder to work that ball. Tiger is using the spinniest ball that he could find. And the value of curve for a good player has been missed by instructors, I think. It's really sad. But... If you're looking, you know, confidence comes and goes like the wind. You can feel totally confident, and all of a sudden you get up on a hole and the wind's blowing left to right, and you're like, well, I don't feel so good about this shot anymore. What am I going to do? Well, if you can create a one-way miss where you know it's only going to go one way, then you can swing with intent. You can swing with trying to play a shot rather than being afraid of what it might do. Azinger says if you can create a one-way miss, why would you ever miss it the other way? Mm -hmm. if, you can, if you know it's not going left, why would you miss it right? And then is Tiger, you know, he, he showed last week in Japan so well, the ability to hit little soft draws, soft cuts for the really good player allows you to control your miss. It allows you to control your trajectory. It also allows you to control how far you hit it so you can hit the ball pin high. And frankly, Rod, today's players, I follow the Corn Ferry Tour and a lot of the new players on the regular tour with a wedge and nine and eight iron, their distance control is terrible. Hmm. But they hit it so far, they're able to take advantage of the par fives. They birdie more long holes than we used to. And But if, if they were to master the shorter shots with curve and this sort of stuff, the scores would go down even more. Yeah. They're not being asked to, I guess. This is one thing. That, as soon as you bring this up, people will accuse you of uh, wanting to punish the players for the skills they've got. It's not true, is it, Phil? It, 
if they were asked to play that game, all the modern players would be the same as all previous players of previous generations. They would master that game, wouldn't they? But they're not being asked to master that game with the equipment available to them. The equipment's allowing them to get around not playing it. Mm. But they're also there's an advantage to even trying to play that game now. The ball is harder to curve. It's harder to work. Mm-hmm. But you still can a little bit. Tiger was an example of that last week. Bubba Watson is another example. Mm-hmm. You can do it. It's just harder now with today's ball. But then instruction is also bought into this idea of big swings, working on technicalities of the swing, all mechanics, make a swing here, make a swing there. It's all about swings. You know, so I have a question, Rod, for you. Mm-hmm. Does the swing create the shot? Or does the shot create the swing? Well, <laughs> isn't this an advanced question? We could probably go for a couple of hours just on that. I'd be more interested in, well, I grew up in an era where watching good players, it makes no difference to me. It doesn't matter what I try to do. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There's no real consistency there because I'm a poor player. But I think we're talking about good players, and I think most people understand that, that what we want to see is good players able to show off their incredible skills. So same question back to you, Phil. Which is it? Is it the shot that creates the swing or the swing that creates the shot? I think that, like with the driver, predominantly the swing creates the shot, but not always. If you if you want to create a one-way miss, now you got to tinker a little bit. you got to adjust your uh, ball position. you got to adjust the face angle or your grip or something slightly. And as soon as you start adjusting to create a shot, now the shot's creating the swing. Mm-hmm. But long irons might be predominantly the swing creates the shot. But it's, once you start getting into the scoring clubs, you know, I had a conversation with Frank Nabilo on, on air a couple years ago and was talking about how the players, I watched them warm up on the range in Dallas, and they, they hit the ball so well. And then I was out on the course, following, I was following Smith and Jason Day and Dustin Johnson, I think it was, and the wind was blowing about 20, and the quality of the iron shots was just absolutely, it was terrible. It was terrible. I'm like, why is there such a difference between the range of the golf course? And Frank said, well, on the range, you've got nothing to worry about. And plus, you don't have to control your distance as much. You get on the golf course, you may not have a perfect number. Mm. And, I'm, and I'm like, Frank, wait a minute. You got your name on your bag. Don't you practice <laughs> adding two or three yards to an eight iron, taking two or three or four yards off an eight iron? You know, throwing it in a little bit, choking down on it, opening the face, closing the face, doing things to alter just a few yards so you can control your distance. The difference between putts made, if you hit a good shot online, 10 feet in, you're likely to make it, I think it's 60% of the time or 50% of the time. As soon as you go to 20 feet, then that cut is cut in half to under 25%. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you'll see players all the time hit a nine iron to 20 feet. They don't make it. And they start fiddling with their putting stroke. You know what? They didn't hit it close enough. Uh Um, You want to be rewarded for your good swings, which you have to control your distance for that to happen. Let's talk about you. You got a. You mentioned Tiger and you mentioned Bubba, and as you say, for most part, I think Trackman's probably had something to do with this too. You've been able to master the shots, haven't you? You get this swing path, uh, this swing plane, this incline, that club head speed, you produce this shot. You can master doing that every single time. But you followed Tiger up close. Um, we know that Tiger's not fair to compare to anybody because he's genuinely special. But you got to follow him up close again just this past week. Tell me your thoughts on Tiger and what your thoughts have been that have evolved on Tiger over the years. Because you've, you've followed his career from inside the ropes with a microphone fairly closely, haven't you? I know your career crossed over with his a little bit, but you've mostly got to watch him up close, I guess, under the pump. Give yeah, us some I played with him a couple of times when he first came out, but it... Mm-hmm. 
but truly I've had the opportunity to follow his career rather, rather closely on the ground, watching him play, watching him practice. And it's fascinating. And we always see the, the pundits will be talking about his golf swing, this golf swing, that this is the, you know, blah, 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 blah. We, he worked with, <laughs> he worked with Butch with one swing. He worked with Haney on another swing. He, he worked with Foley on another swing. He worked with Como on another swing and Como's defense. He was hurt that whole time. And now he's working with himself. He's on his fifth teacher. And arguably his fifth swing, because he's having to make now concessions to his body. Mm-hmm. And he's won with every swing except Como, and he was hurt. So how can it be his golf swing? That's not the source of his greatness. The source of his greatness is, I watched him practice in the early 2000s when he was absolutely at his best. Following his rounds, and he would spend 70% of his time, easily three-quarters of his time, hitting six irons to a wedge, three-quarter shots, little baby draws and baby cuts. And then if you read his interviews, every single interview at that time, he would talk about his, his distance control being whole high and his trajectory control, which just allows you to control your distance. And his goal was to be whole high on every shot. And last week in Japan, that was on display. It was remarkable how he hit every shot, particularly the scoring clubs, were exactly whole high. Mm. Haney always talks about, who obviously coached Tiger for some time, talks about the nine shots, doesn't he? low, middle, and high trajectory, fade and draw uh, with each of the clubs, the, the nine sort of different shots. So the Tiger's probably the best example we've got of that in the modern game, do you think? He can hit them all, can't he, at call? Yeah, no no doubt, no doubt. He can he can hit them all on call, I think, better than anybody else. It all started back, he got beat by Ed Fiore at the Quad Cities in 1998, I think it was, and, and Ed commented, if this kid ever learns how to hit a wedge, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> And, and he did. And it was Butch and John Cook and Mark O'Meara that taught him the value of controlling his distance with his scoring clubs and up as far into the into the back end of the set as he could. And those guys taught him to do that. And he he bought into a T. And the, the combination of that and his mental his mental games off the charts is mm-hmm. so far inferior to everybody else. It's, it's where Jack was. You know, Nicholas was in, was far superior mentally than everyone else. And, and the players that played against him will tell you that. And and Tiger's the same way. To me, those two things, he's lost his distance advantage that he had, but the rest of Tiger is still there on display. Oh, people, say, people said last week, oh, it's a limited field event. Yeah, it's limited to the very best in the world. <laughs> That's what it's limited yeah. to. That's who he beat. So let's not get too carried away with the uh, the limited field idea. We'll come back to Tiger and some of that stuff in a moment because you and I had a bit of a chat about that yesterday. It was fascinating. But I want to come back to this curve notion. I can understand why it's good for good players. What about those of us like me, Phil, the, the recreational, the weekend player? I recall the, the days when the ball curved more and I played and I was no better a player then. I, I'm trying to remember whether it was more fun. I'm not sure. But why should we buy into it? Because of what you wrote a while back when you wrote about score, not playing for score. If the only reason you play golf is for score, then half the time you're going to be disappointed. Because no matter what you shoot, half the time you're going to shoot lower than what you usually shoot. Half the time you shoot higher than you usually shoot because that's your average right Mm. in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's very boring to only play for score. And if that's what's going to bring you back or bring people back to the game, that means you've got to go out and invest a lot of time in practice and getting ready and go play a, a round of golf that's going to take you over from three to five hours. And at the end of the day, only half the time are you going to play any good. Does that sound like something that's going to bring you back? On the other hand, if a specific shot, hey, I'm going to try to do this, I'm going to try to do that, and you try a few shots around, and 
And even if you don't pull it off, you have that, wow, let me, let me drop another one. I want to try that again. Imagine it only taking one or two or three shots a day to bring you back rather than a score. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden now the game becomes a chance to show off. It becomes an opportunity to have fun to create something as long as you know how. And, and the problem is, is how many instructors have you seen or heard of that teach how to curve the ball? Oh, it's the opposite, isn't it? Everyone's, yeah, everyone's it, chasing the straight ball. Chasing a straight ball and a swing. Rocco Mediate made a great comment. He's playing out here this week you know, at a PGA Tour Champions event. And he said, our job as professionals is to start the ball online and control spin. And spin meaning side spin for curve or back spin, whatever it may be. He said, if you use a ball that doesn't spin, what are you going to control? And I thought that's a great way to look at it. And so for the average player, they're trying to make too big a swing. They're trying to hit it too hard, which requires way more coordination and way more practice to do that any good, be any good at it. They need to move up a set of tees. They need to be creative and learn how to make three-quarter swings. You know, Peter Thompson, you know, when he hit the ball, he didn't look like he was jumping out of his shoes to hit the ball. He had this beautiful, languid motion. You know, feet stayed on the ground. It was gorgeous. People need to learn to swing like that. Mm. That's how they need to learn to swing. Not, not like, like these young guys jumping off the ground and you know, trying to hit as hard as they can. Mm. They're, they're such two totally different games, aren't they? The professional game, which is exactly that. It's all about score and only score because that's the dollars correlate directly to the score so you can see the importance it feels to me phil that what you're talking about though is fun and that's a hard thing to define isn't it i suppose it's different things to different people but it's it's got to be interesting to be fun doesn't it It, you have to and i think that's maybe what you're getting at with the idea of curve If, if you can try to move it one way or the other that's interesting that that stimulates the brain not just the body well that's that's my intent and I think the last thing that you can do and be successful is mandate to everybody what they have to do. Mm-hmm. And the and the the game, the amateur game, the average player game has been following the coattails of the tours, the professional game around the world, and so that it now tries to mirror that, and it's lost all creativity. All I want to do is expose people to something else they can do with golf. It doesn't mean they have to play that way all the time, or they might want to, or they might just during around interject some of that it's i want them to choose what's wrong with players having a choice Mm. exposing them how to do something different and then saying you go out there and let me know if i can help you you go out and have fun find out what's fun for you and whatever fits you then that's what you do right now there's no choice rod you you got one game yeah courses are are getting longer they're getting bigger the ball's going straighter Mm -hmm. you got to hit it harder you got you don't have any choice right now that's it Greens are getting faster, lies are getting better, everything about the game is supposed to be better, but there's, it loses something for everything that it does in that way. What do we do about it, Phil? I know that you, you're you not just talking the talk, hey, you plan to walk the walk. You clearly believe in this, genuinely believe in this, and that, that people are missing out on something they don't realise they're missing out on. You want to try and show them what that is. Well, I want to, Brad, I want to start a movement. <laughs> you can believe that. I want to start a movement. I'm going to have a test run at my course where I live in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I'm going to have, invite the membership out. I'm going to do a clinic for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour demonstrating how to play these shots with smaller swings, with a little less effort, how to set up and create curve and to make it go up and, you know, low, higher and lower. And then I want to set the tees up in different places on the course so it's not just the same thing that they've been playing. I want to move some tees up might move some back going to put some tees in the trees 
going to put some out there 100 or 80 or 75 yards from the green and leave a golf club, and you have to play it with the club that I leave. So you can't take a wedge from 75 and hit a big swing. I might leave you a 7-iron. Mm-hmm. So now you got to hit a little shot with a 7-iron. And then I'm going to poll everybody when we get done and have them fill out a little questionnaire and find out if anyone had any fun or if they were interested in the game that way, what they thought. And if I can get 15 or 20% of the people to say, hey, that was pretty cool. I want to start messing with this more. Then if you look at the total number of golfers that are all around the world, and for me in the United States here, 15 or 20% is a big portion. Yeah. And so the next step would be for my club pro who is, is on the board with the South Texas PGA to have it have it with the entire section, have the section do the same thing. And I might go around and to some of those events myself. I might ask Hal Sutton too, or a couple other people to go there, Bill Rogers and, and demonstrate and help with this. And then on a section wide basis, how do people feel about it? Is there, is this something that people might want to learn if might want to do? And if it is, then the next thing is goes to go to the PGA of America as a whole and try to get them to do that throughout the entire country. It opens up doors. It opens up, I mean, for the PGA of America, it opens up a different way for teachers to teach. Mm-hmm. A whole different paradigm for them to, to follow and have fun, in addition to players playing a different way. It, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. It's my way of rolling the game back to a smaller scale without trying to dictate, well, we got to have bifurcation, and we got to do something to equipment, we got to do something to the ball. You know, it's my way. This would be something where the people would decide what they want to do. Mm. And if you can get all the players to want to do something, now you, now you can create change that way. And so that's what I'm hopeful is going to work. We'll find out starting in December. Mm. Of course, the, the politically bifurcation and equipment regulation, we know that's going to be a difficult path should we go down it. And I, I think what you're suggesting sounds good. I don't know if it'll work, but it does sound good. I suppose the key to all of it, Phil, is the ball, a ball that – spins more to allow you to curve the ball more, particularly for lesser players uh, who don't have the control of the club face that the Tigers and yourself does. If this catches on, surely, because at the, at the moment there's not really much in available in that way, is there, in terms of a ball that spins enough to really allow you to work it like you used to the old blind? I, don't, I can't think of anything on the market that allows that. Can you? I, I don't think so. No, no, there's nothing that I know of that's yeah. that's like that ball. I've got a couple of ideas from talking to Rocco that I want to go try when I get home. But no, there's not. And and if there does prove to be a market, if there proves to be enough people that find this interesting, you would think there are from our tweets and stuff with people tweeting about using persimmon woods, roll blades, and that kind of stuff. You would think there'd be a market there. And if there is, there's no one making a ball, so it's, it's ripe for some manufacturer to come in and start making something. There, there's no competition in that market. And it's it's, so, a, it's a sensible way for a market to be born, isn't it? Driven by demand rather than supply. Let's make something try and sell it to you as opposed to people want something. Let's make it and sell it to them. Well, and if you think about it, golf has been upside down in that way for the past 40 years. Yeah. The manufacturers have come up with ideas that they think will work and sell clubs to the average players, so then they take them to the tour players and find a way to make the tour players play them, and then the average players follow suit. So they're trying to create demand based on players wanting something, what they see on television, what they see tour players doing. This is different. This is putting something in your hand, a different game in your hand, using your imagination, and hopefully you say, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is a different game of golf than what I normally play. And if you think, Rod, if you go back to when the game was invented, or you go back to the 1700s 1800s in Scotland, or Ireland and, and that and the and and the way the courses were back then, 
you didn't have good lights. You didn't have all the stuff. You, you had to find a way to create a shot, to play it on the ground, to hit it out of a hole or whatever it was. You had to create something. And that was what the game was about, creating things, not just this mechanical repetition of things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, r- rudimentary, I think, is the word that we might use to describe golf yeah. of that period. I think Mike Clayton always puts it beautifully in this way. He says, in the beginning, the arm wrestle between player course and equipment was very much in favor of the golf course. The equipment was so rudimentary and difficult to use that by far the course had the advantage. But once the steel shaft came along, Really, from the 30s to the mid-90s, that 60-year period there, the, the arm wrestle was pretty even. You played during that period. Do you reckon he's got that about right there compared to now where the equipment certainly has an advantage at the very top level and as much as golf courses are at the mercy, you know, Adam Scott said it a few weeks ago, you can't make the golf courses long enough as far as the guys hit it these days. There's got to be a better way, to t- a different way to test them. I, I agree 100%. And the problem with that, for the tours is that the best players tend to be the ones that hit it the furthest, mm-hmm. the farthest. And so if you, if you're running a tournament and you want to get the best field that you can, and if you go to a shorter course with dog legs and whatnot, the best players, most of them don't come mm. because they don't want to play that game. They want to play the game they have learned. Yeah. You know, and I have no problem. I have nothing against the players. They were, have been given a set of tools mm-hmm. and they've gone out and mastered a way to take advantage of how these tools work. How can you have anything against the players for no. doing that? That's exactly what they should do. But if you want to have players come to your tournament, if you go out there and grow a bunch of rough or shorten up the course and create some dog legs, the best players aren't coming. You're going to hurt your tournament. And so there's, you just can't get at it that way. Yeah. There's got to be another way. I wonder, Phil, there's a generation of people who never saw it, but even even the youngest of golfers will have heard the name Seve and have some understanding of why he's so revered amongst golfers. Bubba Watson's a little Seve-like in some ways, I guess, in that he plays some really amazing shots, but could we have Seve with the modern equipment? It doesn't feel like we could. No, there's no chance. I mean, I've listened to some some players. I've watched Seve quite quite often, and uh, but I've known some people that that were really close with Seve and, and have talked to some of the stuff that he shared with him about what he tried to do and how he would try to to catch the ball, and as he caught the ball, then he would add spin to it based on how he used the club face to the ball. He would add spin after the after he'd already made contact. He'd keep the ball in the face and add spin is what he felt. You can't yeah. do that with today's ball. Today's ball is already gone. Mm. Mm. And it's hard, too. It's plastic, isn't it? If you've ever hit a ballada ball, you can feel it's a bit like a marshmallow. It feels like it stays on the face longer. And uh, if you know what you're doing, you can probably do something with it. Uh, we've talked about, I suppose, recreational players and why it might be something that those of us at my level might consider. It brings some fun and interest and things to the game that perhaps aren't there as much at the moment. At the professional level, does a ball that curves more uh, and can be curved more, separate the best. Is Tiger further ahead of the field if curve is a bigger part of the game at the professional level? And then as an extension to that, is that game, there's probably some personal, is that game more entertaining to watch than what we see today? I think without a doubt, and yes, Tiger would be ahead of the curve, but the curve would catch up. Mm-hmm. They just don't do it right now. and you know, it, it, it would behoove them to learn to do it a little bit now, but they don't. But yes, it would be very entertaining to watch because now, you know, I played the I played the PGA Tour for 16 years, mm-hmm. and I was not a very accurate driver of the golf ball back in the time when you needed to be, and invariably I'll get somebody come up 
and they'll say, oh, hey, I watched you play. You hit the most incredible shot out of the trees or out of the rough or out of <laughs> something. They remember the shots where you're creative playing something. Mm-hmm. No one comes up and says, oh, I remember the shot you hit out of the middle of the fairway. Yeah, that, that beautiful you know, seven you know? iron that went 187 yards exactly because that's what the track man tuned you to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I've not had one person come and tell me that. Yeah, well, but no I one's seen you on a fairway for a long time, Phil, so there hasn't been well, the opportunity that's, that's in fairness. The point of it. <laughs> uh, that's true, but, but out of all the people that have said something, I promise you 99% of mm. them have talked about some sort of creative shot where, where I made a ball curve or do something something different yeah and they and they really like that and yes i think i think if somehow we could reintroduce curve into the game and spin into the game at a professional level that and you i mean that would require going to a smaller driver head you know going to 330 or something on a driver head and if you did that and you did a little something with the grooves then the ball would most likely have to follow suit to fit using those clubs Mm. um i I feel like as fans if you if you go back, uh, the Masters did it last year. They put up the last 50 years of the Masters. You could go and watch all the final rounds. And some of those shots you would see, and one sticks in my mind, I can't remember what year it was, but Nicholas hitting a one-iron to the 15th green. as a momentous <laughs> moment, and you could feel it on the television 40 years later watching it on the laptop that there was genuine, you know, there was things to be really thought about. It was a momentous decision. I feel like we get robbed because we don't get to see Rory make that decision, do we? Because it's a six-iron for him. He's capable of hitting the one iron across the water to that green, as is Dustin, as is Tiger, as is Adam Scott. But we as fans don't get to see them make that decision and take that shot on because it's not necessary. I feel like we miss out. No, <clears throat> excuse me. You're exactly right. We do miss out. And and then you got you got the hybrids, you know, to to go along with that. And people I've spoken with hybrid about hybrids and re- replacing long irons, and they said, well, they used to use five woods and seven woods back in the day. And I said, well. With a spinny ball, you took a five or seven wood with a spinny ball, that thing would upshoot on you. It was hard to control. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like today's, you know, rock that you use and a hybrid that launches high in the air and it goes straight. It was a totally different thing. And so, yes, we are robbed of these special shots. And it doesn't have to be a long shot to be special. No. It can be short shots mm-hmm. as well. But where the creativity to play some of these shots and do these things, for the most part, I mean, they still they still play some great golf. Don't get me wrong, hmm. but we're we're missing out on another side of the game that we're not getting to see. Yeah. Not getting to see. We risk sounding like grumpy old men, Phil. I wonder. I wonder how how do we get around that? Uh, how do how do we bring people with us on the journey? Because of course, the problem is you meet some resistance. People aren't used to that sort of golf. They haven't seen it themselves or been exposed to it. Ergo, they can't imagine why it could be better. Why would they listen? This is probably the biggest and the most difficult question, isn't it? Well, and that's that's why I'm trying to trying to see if I can create some sort of movement from from the other side. You, you're going to have a hard time getting the tours, the professional tours, to change because these players have have spent their life mastering this equipment and to play for money. And if you guys say, okay, we're going to change that, well, that's not really fair, is it? I mean, it's not. How are you going to do that? I just don't see it changing from the top for the professional game like that. Because the, the professional tours are in too good a place, you got a lot of players with a lot of talent. That it is, it's exciting to watch the competition. But so there's no incentive for them to change, uh, and so you can't. That's why I don't think it's going to work from the top down. It's got to work from the bottom up, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm hoping that we can educate people and expose them to 
what the game can be also this way and let them choose hmm. then maybe a groundswell of some sort will come up in the other direction and, and maybe i can't make it happen i don't know maybe I'm, it's a pie in the sky dream i don't know but it i just i don't have confidence in it coming down from the professional game coming down from that direction well i'll, I'll give you this phil blackmar i'll tell you what a pie in the sky dream is as a kid one day thinking to himself i might play on the pga tour because a tiny percentage of the world's population ever gets to that you manage to do that so uh if you can do that there's no reason why you can't perhaps uh try this yes it's just offering people something else isn't it? let's talk about a bit of golf and and this kind of ties in. Let's have some reminiscences about your time on tour. What have been some of your favorite? When, when I say to you, Phil Blackmar's career, what do you think? What are the what are the incidents, the moments that you think of? Three wins, I imagine they're up there. But you must have seen some extraordinary things in golf over the years. Things we're not seeing anymore. I uh, yeah, I've seen. Uh, you know, when I think of it in terms of myself, I was very fortunate to have won three times, and I won all three times in playoffs, and I birdied the first hole all three times to win. And I'm very, I'm very proud of that, how I, how I did that. Cause I didn't get in the moment very often, but when I did, I was pretty good in the moment. Um, some of the things I saw, I mean, I got to play with Jack Nicholas a number of times and to watch, to watch Jack. And I had a moment, one memory that's really fun to me is, is the first time I played at the masters. I shared this with you the other night. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm practice putting with Greg Norman on Wednesday before the masters and the greens are rolling probably about 17 on the step meter. That's what Tom kite. That's what kite thought they were rolling. That was his, I asked him what he thought. And he said 17. Wow. So I'm having this little doing this thing with Greg. We've got about a four and a half foot putt down this hill and talking about going downhill. How would you hit it? If you had a chance to win on the last hole by one shot. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm young at this time and arrogant and, and like, well, I'm going to fly it in the hole. Well, Jack Nicholas is sitting right over there, and I didn't know Jack very well at that time. And he comes over and he says, say what? I said, I'm going to hit it hard. He said, well, why wouldn't you hit it easy? If it goes in, you win. If it doesn't, you're in a playoff. you still got a chance to win. And I said, well, if uh, for me, if i got four and a half feet to win, I want to give myself the best chance I have. I might get in a playoff, and guy birdies the first hole, and I lose. You've had a chance to win here so many times. This might be my only chance. i got four and a half feet. I putt my short putts best when I putt them firm, so I'm going to putt this putt firm. And that's when it happened. I got the best player maybe of all time, I think, Jack Nicholas, And I got Greg Norman, you know, come, becoming one of the best players in the world at that moment, standing there. And Jack looks at me and says, well, let's see it. I'm like so nervous. You know, I get over this putt and I'm shaking. And we're, we're by the gallery ropes, you know, where the – patrons as they call them there are there and, and i hit this button they're watching and it lips out and i pulled it a hair it lips out and goes down to the fringe and all the patrons go oh <laughs> and i'm like you know oh, and then nicholas says well let me try he gets in there you know and i'll bend over like he got you know and he just touches this thing and it barely it's just going into a ring just barely moving and it seemed like it took a minute to get to the hole and then it hung just for just to, to look at me, it hung on the edge of the hole for for a moment, and then it went boom, dropped in the hole, and all the all the folks started clapping and applauding Jack, and I you know I felt like trying to find a rock to climb under, you know, I was embarrassed. Well, that was 1986. Wow! Jack went on to win his six green jacket that yeah. week over Greg, and, <laughs> and Greg yeah, was right yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. And to have that happen with that sort of timing, that was. That was really a special moment, but 
Rod, I've been very fortunate. I watched Seve and Olathebel having a bunker contest of the players one year. I sat down on the bank and just watched them. It was phenomenal. I watched Tom Weiskopf hit hit shot hitting wedges one day that were just so beautiful. It was a joke. Played with Tiger when he hit on the 17th hole when the ball didn't go as far yet. 1990, probably 98. It was going a little further, but it wasn't going that much further. And and on the 17th at Riviera in Los Angeles from 260. Up the hill, he hit two iron in the middle of the green. I'm like, oh, look at, holy cow, how did he do that? You know, we've been playing all day, and I've been pretty much keeping up with him off the tee, and then this thing came out of nowhere. It was a rocket. And uh, it was it was incredible. You know, I, I watched Hubert Green, one of the best short games in the history of the game. And I watched, got to be buddies with Hubert and watch him pitch. I had a had a short game contest with Tom Watson at the Masters one time. How'd that go? Um, that, you know, we were fairly even, actually. It was pretty good, but I learned some things. He didn't chip with spin. We had a sh- uh, one shot we're hitting over this bunker to, to a close hole, and he and I watched him, and he didn't try to spin it. And I said, why didn't you try to spin that? He says, I never try to spin it. So I don't want to spin it. I want it to come on the ground, on the green, just like as if I dropped it out of my hand. That way I know how it's going to roll out. If I try to spin it, I'm not sure if it's going to stop or, or if it's going to release or if I'm going to get the amount of spin that I want. And I went, wow, that's pretty cool. And of course, this is back when you didn't get a new wedge every week with brand new grooves in it. So the game was different then. And you didn't have 62-degree wedges and stuff. You had to create it with a 56-degree 50, wedge. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of things I got to watch. I got to watch Mo Norman hit balls oh, wow. up in Canada a couple of times. Like? And that was phenomenal. I mean, just every shot was the same, just just one after another after another. You know, and he was a little older by then, so he wasn't hitting it that far, but it was still just, I mean, every shot was the same. It was really, really, really cool to watch Mo do that. And I played with Arnold Palmer my rookie year, a couple rounds. I mean, I've, it's really been, I've been very fortunate. Yeah, well it's, well, it's been quite the journey. I'm interested while I'm listening to you there, Phil, and I'm hearing, well, you you, you know, you, you and Norman are having a competition and Jack wanders in and you're playing with Watson and you're hitting this. And you, Do players still do that? There's almost a mentoring thing going on there, isn't there? Is that still happening? There is a mentoring thing, and it's it's remarkable. I, I, I they may have some contests, maybe at home they do some things. You know, guys tend to gravitate to certain areas. There'll be a bunch of players in Orlando, you know, as one Phoenix is another different places like that. So they may go out and have contests at home and, and such. I don't think they do it as much uh, at tournaments like we did. But the thing that's I'm not a big fan of these days is what they call everybody calls their team no. we got the tag got my team are you gonna wait what's your schedule next year well i don't know i gotta go discuss it with my team well, why don't you like you that, know, Phil? Like, why don't you like i don't that? like it i don't like it because number one the player is not taking responsibility for what he's doing he's being told what to do and when you get on the golf course you've got to make a decision on a shot based how you feel how do you feel about a shot what, what's your strategy? What, how's, what's the lie? You can't make a decision about what shot you're going to hit without incorporating how you feel. And a caddy can't know how you feel. A team can't know how you feel. So you create this team where everyone's telling you what to do. And you get out of the habit of being self-aware and being self-accountable. And then on top of it, they're surrounding themselves with these teams that never played professional golf. <laughs> Explain that. You know, I, I get maybe a sports psychologist. I get it, although I, I disagree with what 99% of them have to say. I, I like, well, I take that back. I don't think they go far enough. I think they cut it off so it's a, a message they can give to everybody, any handicap, anything. It's just good mental habits. But it misses 
being like Tiger, you know, having a chance to figure out what Tiger does. Um, you know, but it's, you got a weight trainer, you got all these people you got, and they never played the game at a great level. You look at tennis, how often do you see tennis players that have a great champion in their corner working with them as a coach Mm. or as an advisor? Mm. And why don't we do that in golf? You know, why doesn't Jack have these guys he's working with or Greg or, you know, whoever it may be. I don't understand that part. That's interesting. I want to, I want to back up. You need to explain yourself. Where don't they go far enough with the, the mental game because it, it, it's the part of the game to be honest with you, i find the most interesting it's the most human part of the game isn't it i mean physical stuff comes and goes and some are more naturally gifted than others but if you're smart you can learn to think on a golf course in a way that will improve scores and enjoyment well nicholas had wrote a lot of great stuff if you if you google jack nicholas quotes you can find some things that are fantastic there's no wonder that he was such a great player um and, and so you talk about things you know about not getting ahead of yourself and these sort of things. But the way they teach the game is basically with blinders. You just play each shot the same. It doesn't matter the situation. Where's the fun in that? You going to tell me that Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus didn't know that the last shot was to win. didn't want the last shot to, to win. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of just going out and just, you know, pay, don't pay any attention to anyone else. Do your best. Well, Tiger at Japan in his interview talked about Mariama, talked about Mariama who was playing in front of him and, you know, they were close he was his only challenger, really, and how he was watching Mariama the last couple of holes, watching his shots, seeing where he was headed, seeing what he was doing, so he would know what he had to do. You don't hear the you don't hear sports psychologists teaching that. You don't hear players talking about do that. You hear them more with blinders. You know, well, I just I didn't look at this. I didn't look at that. I didn't want to know. And I'm thinking, well, if I got a doctor cutting on my knee, I want him to be concerned about how it's going to out how the outcome, not just say he's going to go through the motions. <laughs> and Tiger. But Tiger did stuff, you know, was very fortunate and he's special and maybe not everyone can do it, but you never know till you try. And the thing that Tiger is able to do and Jack did as well, is they're able to concentrate harder in the moment, focus harder on what they want to do without being mechanical. And at the same time, they can relax more. And most people simply cannot do that. And that's why, that's why the, the common thread is okay well you need to just not care because in that way you can relax well you can learn to do that i was trained to do that by some by a couple olympic swimmers you can train yourself to do it but you got to get off the course you got to work at it there's simple programs that you can do that train you to to focus harder relax that's neat it makes you feel good about yourself and then you add some other visualization and stuff it's it's really cool but i don't i just don't hear anybody going all in like that does anybody go and watch Tiger practice the way you talked about going and watching other players practice? It's a great question. No, <laughs> not at all. I, I, all the, I was doing TV early round coverage on the tour from 2002 till 2006. And during that time, Tiger was playing great. And every time we had Tiger in our window, early round coverage, when he was done the afternoon round, I would go watch him practice. And so I probably watched him practice 35 or 40 times over that four year period. And I never went up and bugged him. I just sat back and watched. Now, every now and then I go talk to Stevie, but for the most part, I just sat back and watched. And not one time in all those times that I was watching did one player come down and watch or talk to him or ask him a question, not once. And I'm like, you know, my generation, we would have been down here doing that at all times. And I, I don't understand. I wanted to raise my hand and say, hey, hey, all you guys, <laughs> come down, down here, here. <laughs> That's right. he's kicking your tail, he's kicking your tail, you might want to come watch, you know what, he's practicing different than you guys do, you might want to see what he's doing, yeah. 
you know. So no, they didn't. I wonder why, Phil. I, w- I wonder how much money has changed the game because the the. There was always good money. I mean, if you're a good player, Jack Nicholas made plenty of money out of him, but nothing like what we see today. He still had to go and keep playing. Tiger could have retired 20 years ago. He could have never come back from the scandal. Money would never have been an issue. And that's true of an awful lot of players. He's got more than the rest of them, but there's an awful lot of players who will never have to work again before they're 30. Is that maybe what's no, changed the game, do you think? Well, I think a lot of things have changed. I think that's a big part of it. Um, social media... And, and so much media attention now, you didn't used to have that. And so if you're, if you're going to put yourself out there to where you have a chance to be number one in the world or a challenge to be number one in the world, look at the media and social media scrutiny that you come under. Everything you do is analyzed, every little thing. You can't hide from it. And that's not for everyone. Not everybody wants that. You look at the scrutiny Tiger's been under. Not everybody is willing to put up with what he's put up with or dealt with or, you know, not, he's not liked a lot of it, but he's still, he's still been able to deal with it. A lot of people don't want to. So that's a decision that you know, only the player can make is how much is it worth to you? You can make a great living or you can try to be, you know, one of the best players in the world, but you're, you're going to be subjected to this incredible scrutiny. You give well, something what do you up, do? don't you? You give something up. I think Chambly's talked about it. You get, there's a price to be paid for being the richest and the best and the best known, isn't there? There's, there's another price to be paid, which isn't monetary, but it's a genuine price, a real price. Absolutely. Absolutely there is. Mm. And it's and it's a tough price. I don't think people realize mm. um, what that cost is, what, yeah. what it, the toll that it can take on. I know Rory has said he'd love to have Tiger's record, but he wouldn't want Tiger's life. That's telling, isn't it? That's a big thing to say, I think. Yeah, Tiger, Rory, Rory hasn't. Roy's an interesting guy. He seems like, I don't know him that well, but a little bit, he seems like a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. He seems like a really nice guy. He really does. And he's got so much talent in his body just oozing out. It's incredible. It's incredible how talented he is. But he hasn't figured out his himself out yet. You know, what is it that he wants? He doesn't really know. How should he act? It was. It's interesting. He was working last year a lot on, on what Brad Faxon kind of taught him in putting which basically was to avoid the moment. He wanted to be under the radar. He wanted just to kind of not care and just play and relax and not care. And he said so. And then, though, after Memphis, which was uh, right before the uh, the last WGC event until this one, um, he played with Brooks Kepka in the last round, and Brooks drummed him in that last round. Mm. And and he said, you know, if I want to be a really good player, i got to be more like Brooks. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, where, where are you? Do you want to be any Brooks is a chip on his shoulder going to beat, you know, he wants, he's like a boxer. Yeah, that's right. He wants to beat you. Mm. And so, but truly it's interesting. It's such a fine line. Like with Tiger, he's like Brooks and he's like Faxon at the same time. Mm-hmm. He wants to beat you like a boxer and pound you, but yet he's still really relaxed and he doesn't worry about the results. So the question is this, how do you become someone that is really you're really opportunist. You take advantage of opportunities. You you can't wait to take advantage of an opportunity and show off in a moment at a moment without regard for failing. And that's truly what you got to be. You got to be excited about the moment with no regard for failing. That's that's the give me the ball, guys. That's the Jordan thing. I want the ball. It I is. want the chance. To I want fail. the op- yeah. yeah, I want the opportunity. I yeah. want the opportunity. If I fail, I don't care. Give it to me again. Because it makes me feel this way. I want to feel like that. I want that. And I think Rory's 
kind of trying to figure out how to be like that. Mm. And, and maybe he's closer right now. I mean, he ended up having a great year last year. And although arguably the, the first part of the year, he had a lot of chances and made nothing of them, but he did better towards the end, you know, and then he won again. And maybe he's figuring out who he needs to be. It's fascinating watching. Boy, he's so talented. Isn't well, it? Look, you, there's, there's a few players you'd pay to go and watch. And McElroy is one of them. And Tiger's another that you would pay to go and watch. Just you know, you pay to watch them. Pay to watch Tiger read the paper. Probably it's, he's 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 that intriguing in that way. But I wonder, I wonder whether even subconsciously Rory's looked into the abyss. I mean, he's a prime example. He needs and wants for nothing, and never will. He can walk away from the game tomorrow, uh, and no problem. You know, the rest of his life is well and truly set, and has been. For a long time, he feels like he dips in and out of it. To me, Phil, he goes through these periods where he's decided that's it. I want, I want to be the best in history because I think he's got the physical talent. And certainly, you watch him play. There's no when he's as good as he can be. There's not many can stop him. You, 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 you dream of the day that he and Woods go head to head, both playing well as a spectator. You couldn't want any more. But I wonder whether he he then seems to retreat almost. Don't you think at, at the really big moments? I wonder. Well, he's. That's he certainly has done that. That's yeah. I mean, you look at, at what he did at the Open last year. I don't mean that as a criticism either. Yeah. By the way, he he's actually there no, looking at it. It might be a perfectly reasonable decision to say, "Do you know what? I really don't want that <laughs> subconscious." That might be perfectly legitimate. I do, but I, it feels like that's what happens. I don't know. Well, you know, he's still just a young guy. You know, sure. most players don't really mature into their game until they're about twenty seven, twenty eight years old. Which is, you know, he's I think what is he twenty eight now, twenty nine? He's twenty eight or twenty nine. Um, yeah. I think so, and so. You know, he may just be finding himself and figuring it out. Uh, you know, he's he's had some experiences, you know, some life lessons that are huge. And missing the cut, you know, in Ireland this oh, year at the yeah. Open was, was a, a huge thing for mm-hmm. him. Um, he, he played Tiger in the match play. They were paired against each other in the semifinal match. And I was watching it on the first tee. Roy standing on the back of the tee looking down. He some people but down. He's smiling and laughing and saying hi on the first tee. And Tiger... <laughs> is the opposite. He's standing there looking down the fairway with this look on his face, like, like he's just going to bite into a piece of steel. Mm-hmm. And and so you're like, wait, what a contrast between these two. Maybe Rory and needs so, to read Nick Ahern's book. Knocked him over twice, Phil. Might. Twice. That's yeah, just he might. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. I, a, I don't know. And I think, I think the thing is, is that the answer is not the same for everybody. No. It's a little different for everybody, but there are common threads. Yeah. I wonder, based on you know, how you phrased this question to begin with, what it made me think is, can you be a great player without a sense of urgency? Ooh, yeah, well, it's only, the window's only open for, it's long, open for longer in golf than most sports, but it inevitably closes, doesn't it? So that's a really interesting question. I wonder. Well, and, and it relates to the money aspect, you know, mm. that you said. There's so much money that takes that takes certainly takes that sense of urgency away. Yeah, mediocre so the sense of ur- living, the sense they? of urgency has mm. to come from within. It has to come from the desire to be great and to master these things that are that are a lot of them are intangible, they're tough mm. to master and they're unique to you. Maybe Roy's getting that figured out right now. It'd yeah, be interesting maybe. to see. It will. You would love wouldn't you love to see him and Tiger head to head at Augusta National back nine Sunday, both playing well? Just the two. It would. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. Wow, we'd all pay for that. Who else impresses you, Phil, of the of the modern crop? They're all good players, but the things that really separate. I I, I think about 
Spieth, and I know he hasn't had his best year this past year, but we got the chance to watch him a couple of times here in Australia, and my goodness, he's got the gift of getting the ball in the hole, doesn't he? Without doing anything that looks amazing, he writes down numbers that you can't, you've got to go back and double check, did he really have that? That's an amazing score, he didn't look like he was shooting that. He's got something special, I think. What do you reckon? Uh, there's no doubt. You know, he's, he's, I looked for him to have a good year again this year. Mm-hmm. He, he has a special intangible about him. He gets that part of it. You know, a lot of people um, will say, use the word it. Does he have it? Well, Spieth's got it. Yeah. And the question is, is, is can his physical skills in the long game get back to where they need to? He's putting, you know, he had his best putting stats ever last year, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And so he had, he had spent all his time worrying about his putting. The long game went in the toilet. And so now he's got to get his long game back into shape. Um, I think that if he can do that, it's fascinating. You know, he, he will win again and he will win majors again. His short game mm. is phenomenal. Oh, his ability, yeah. he chips with spin. Yeah. His ability to create the same amount of spin, the amount that he wants every time, is incredible. Yeah. Um, the shot he hit at Augusta the year before he won at Augusta, he was contending. And on the 71st hole, he was down outside in the in, outside the gallery ropes where the gallery was walking. He's on that long rye grass, tight lie, sitting down. It's all trampled down, sitting down. He's got to come up a steep and bank over the bunker to this big elevated green up there. And he's got very little green to work with. And he and he hits this spinny wedge up there that takes a hop and stops two feet from the hole. Mm. And I was watching. I looked at my wife. And I had a pretty good short game. And I looked at her and I said, you know. I could sit down there with a whole bucket of balls, and I couldn't do that more than once or twice, uh-huh. <laughs> let alone in that moment. Yeah, that's right. That's the, in, the courage to play it, isn't it? The the confidence. He, he has the courage to play it, and yeah. he's special that way. Another person who does is Justin Thomas. Yeah, I agree. Justin Thomas is a special guy, and Brooks Kepka is an interesting guy. You know, those those two guys have it. They're not afraid of any moment. They have it. Roy has you know all the talent. You know that's incredible. Um, you know, Dustin Johnson. Is is a really really good player, you know, may arguably a great player, but I don't think that he's going could potentially achieve the heights of what these guys because his game's not quite as well rounded as as their games are. Yeah, it's it's the intangibles from outside. See, I'm not Kepka's greatest fan in that sense. He's interesting. It's an interesting cast of characters, but there's almost something contrived about Kepka. He needs to invent slights to motivate him or something. It has to come from without for him. Which is interesting. So did so did a lot of great players. Yeah, a lot of great players true. had chips on their shoulders. Yeah, maybe. Azinger, <clears throat> Azinger had a chip on his shoulder, and, and talking to him, Paul is a good buddy of mine. He had a chip on his shoulder. Xander Shoflet, who almost won this week there on the WGC in China, um, he has a chip on his shoulder. Kepka has a chip on his shoulder. Mm. Um, I can go out throughout sport, and you can find examples of players that had a chip on their shoulder. I suppose Woods has so, done yeah, maybe, too, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been like that too, hasn't yeah, he? Woods, times. Yeah, his dad instilled that in him. And, yeah. and that chip on your shoulder creates that sense of urgency mm. where I need to find a way to make this happen. And that creates that extra level of that intangible side of intensity. And if you can channel that intensity into more focus and relaxation at the same time. Now you start to do special things. Padraig Harrington, he won three majors. Padraig Padraig Harrington said, when you're at your best, you're nervous before the shot, and it helps you narrow your focus. And when you're at your worst, you're calm before the shot, and you become nervous over the ball. Wow. What a great way way to put it. There's an insight, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So these guys with chips on their shoulders, they're using that energy Mm. of that chip to create more intensity and the intensity they then channel into focus. And if they're able to do that without tightening up, 
then it becomes a great tool. Yeah, and they can, and the whole point is they continue to entertain us because at the end of the day, Phil, that's what it is, isn't it? It's entertainment, professional golf, and it needs to entertain to survive. It, it, it truly is. Yeah. It truly is. I mean, these guys, it's nothing to take away from the skill level or how good they are, but that's, that's what professional golf is. It's entertainment. That's why you watch, isn't it? Last thing before I let you go. What is it about this game, Phil? You've clearly still got the disease all these years later. I'm going to suggest that your best golf is probably behind you, and it was some pretty amazing stuff, and yet you don't seem to have lost any of the love for the game. Why does this game get people like this? That's a good question. I think Jim Flick, who I used to work with, who's a you know Hall of Fame teacher, um, I used to do golf schools with him, and he had a saying. He said, golf is a lifetime of problem solving. And I think that if you're in love with the game, then you then you want to try to solve the problems. You want to tr- every golf shot that you hit, every shot is a problem. You got to decide, you know, what's your target, what's your strategy, what do you want to do with this. Every single shot is a problem, and then from a bigger picture, technique becomes a problem. Strategy of the whole golf course becomes a problem. What do you do as far as working out or working on your game? What do you do? What style of game do you want to play? What equipment do you want to use? Um, it's a big problem. And then, and then you get bigger picture. You start looking at, you know, how equipment affects the game or where the direction of the game is heading and how professional tours affect the game. It's, it's this big complex thing that's for me personally, I find a lot. I really have a lot of fun getting in between the lines, getting deep into it, trying to figure out why things work or how they work or how can I apply that? Um, whereas a lot of people tend to be one of more superficial. I want to get digging deep down in there for whatever reason I always have. And so the game really attracts me at that level. I love it, Phil. I don't know who it was that said it, but one of my favorite sayings is there are no problems, only solutions. You might be that guy. <laughs> Maybe so. But, I'm certainly looking for loose solutions. And we love that the fact that you're doing it. It's been fantastic to chat today, Phil. We'll stay in touch, and I'm sure you'll do a bit of blogging about how that goes. I'll be really interested, interested to hear how the event goes in Texas later this year. Best of luck with that. And, and I hope that, it, it, not just for you, I hope it's a success for you so you can feel you've done something good, but I hope that you get to give that gift to some people. That, that really is a gift, I, isn't it? That that to give that is. to have I, them take it for the rest of their life. To give back, it's a yeah. different way to give back. It's yep. it's a new, unique way. I hope it works out. Yeah, terrific to chat today, mate. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. Episode seven of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Hope you've enjoyed talking as much as film, uh, listening. Sorry, you better not have been talking through all of that because we were really getting into it. So I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We'll be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.